0: Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we're going to be looking at a poem you probably did in school and maybe enjoyed, unlike other poems that you did in school. Maybe you didn't like it, I don't know. We're going to be looking at The Tiger by William Blake. This is a last minute change because I was originally planning... To use another William Blake poem for this podcast that I might still use for a future episode. And that poem was going to be, it was actually going to be an excerpt from his sequence of prose, philosophy, and aphorisms, um, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And it was going to be a section of that called The Proverbs of Hell. I always enjoyed this piece of work when I was um, in my 20s. I was a big fan of Blake, and I still am a big fan of Blake. I've actually gone down a little Blake rabbit hole and rediscovered the pleasures and the joys of reading his poetry. Um, But I think I needed a bit of a break from him because I went a bit deep into him when I was a younger man. And so I was going to do The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And I don't know if anyone else gets this, right? But um, when you get older, time passes a lot quicker than you thought it had. And this sometimes manifests in different ways. So it manifested quite handily for me when I was doing the dad's race at the sports day the other week. And I injured myself about two strides in. Just something in my leg went. Because I went from not warming up to a full on sprint with my 43 year old carcass against all these 20 year old dads. And I was just injured within two strides. And I crossed the line and I didn't come last. I probably sort of added about two weeks of discomfort to that. Im- of that injury by not stopping immediately because of just ego and basically my child not seeing me as a failure and I think the reason why I did it without warming up or anything was because I just assumed oh yeah I last sprinted for something not too long ago and then realized I probably last sprinted for something five years ago I mean I've had a little run here and there but not a full-on sprint from like zero to as fast as I can go without any warming up. And so that's the stupidness. And I've just done the mental equivalent of that by thinking to myself, I used to read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell all the time. Therefore, I don't need to research this poem loads before this podcast. And then I realized just looking at it, oh, my goodness. No, I need to spend a bit more time with this because I have forgotten so much of this. So I I, I decided instead to go to a more familiar work. A work that is more recognisable from the canon and everything else like that as well. And that is The Tiger. So you did it at school as well. Now, you might not have given it a lot of thought. I think that's one of the strengths of the poem, which is it actually can be analysed quite a bit. There's quite a lot that you can chew on in this poem. While at the same time, because it's a song, it has that slightly airy, traipsy quality there's a lot of pleasure you can get from reading it aloud without delving deep into any of the ideas of the poem or any of the imagery of the poem. And I think part of, a, part of it is just the primal draw of the idea of the tiger. It has, its, um, it has sort of an archetypal energy to it. As in, we're going to look at the metaphorical aspects of this poem because it's hard not to see this poem as a metaphor. But there's just something so primal about the image of the tiger that sort of runs throughout mythology, runs throughout art, um, but you don't really—it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct sort of simile or metaphor or even an um, a um, allegory—is the word I was looking for. Um, that that uh, and and I think oh, I think that's an interesting thing about this poem anyway, which is the difference between metaphor. We can say something which is a metaphor, and we can mean something that's archetypal. I'll, I'll explain what archetype means and i'll explain what allegory means archetype according to a psychiatrist psychologist called carl jung um is is sort of part of what we call a collective consciousness so certain ideas certain images and certain narrative things sort of belong to the human psyche they're built in And so these things will pop up in different mythologies and in different cultures, even when these cultures haven't had that much contact with each other. So when there's an archetype, when an archetype has an energy to it, I think an archetype, it just has, it just carries a lot of weight. Um, There's something about it that just stirs the depths, you could say. There's something about it that's rooted in our psyche. It strikes a little bell. And if we look at an allegory, normally, and I think a lot of people mean allegory when they say metaphor, an allegory is when you use one thing as a substitute for something else. So perhaps an obvious allegory would be Animal Farm by George Orwell, where it is it seems to be quite explicitly about communism, even though obviously we're using different farm animals to tell the story. And we can sort of recognise one character as Marx and maybe recognise another character as Stalin. And then, um, you know, just uh, and recognizing another character as Trotsky when we read Animal Farm. So allegory normally happens also when um, when a poem, like, allegory is used a lot when, let's say you've got a really brutal leader. And if you speak the truth about this leader, um, you're going to end up thrown in jail or worse. Horrible things will befall you and maybe before the people that you love too. So sometimes allegory is used where you tell something where it's, oh, this is just a nursery rhyme. This is just a this is just a fairy story. I'm not talking about this. um And, and, and you know, I'm not I'm not criticizing the dear leader. No, I'm just telling a story about a very fat and stupid pig. So there's there's that. That's so that's allegory. And I think. When we look at this poem, I think it really falls in that land in the sense that it has a has archetypal aspects to it. But it could actually have allegorical aspects to it as well. There could be things that Blake is talking about and he doesn't really want to get into too much trouble. Even though, to be fair, Blake got into a fair bit of trouble anyway. Let's talk about his life and then we'll read the poem and then we can really go into the poem after that. And then I can go off on one or wander off on one, as I should say. William Blake is a poet that sort of belongs to the early early Romantic era. He's a poet. He spent a little bit of time out of London, but he spent most of his time in London. So he was born in 1757 and he died um, a pretty good age, actually 70 in in 1827. He spent most of his time in, in, in London. He's obviously very famous now as a poet, as an artist and as an engraver as well. And obviously he wasn't that in his own time, he wasn't massively successful so even though he was popular within his social circles um, as a poet and as an artist, he, he was never I mean, he's 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 one of the most well-known artists and poets now, especially from Britain. And I think he really sums up London. If ever, if ever, anyone ever sort of talks to me about poets that, that really have an intrinsic London quality to them, then we as Londoners can be very proud to call William Blake one of our own. And I've given lectures before, actually, where I've talked about sort of poets of London. And we start sometimes with William Blake. I know that there's lots of other famous poets in London, but there's just something about Blake that really I can identify with London. And then I have to move up to sort of Linton Quasey Johnson, the dub poet who who lives in Brixton, not far from me. And the dub poet Linton Quasey Johnson always has, it's quite interesting to compare and contrast this dub poet who writes about the riots the brixton riots and the oppression of the police around the time especially in the 70s and it still happens today and then comparing him to blake who was also another revolutionary poet and they, they really strike off a bit of fire when you put those two together so on the subject of fire william blake one of his earlier experiences so he lived in london he was educated as an engraver he didn't he did an apprenticeship as an an engraver the the man, I think he got into trouble because he said he, he always spoke his mind. And um, he said that the guy who taught him, so the guy who took on his apprenticeship for engraving, he, he just came out and said, um, I think he's destined for the noose or something like that. And he got into a bit of trouble for that. But then the guy was hung 12 years later. So who knows what happened there? Either, either Blake put a hex on him or um, Blake just could see it. Another famous thing from... Blake's childhood is that um, Peckham Rye another place that's not too far from me beautiful South London he saw angels in a tree on Peckham Rye as well and um, his one mother he ra- he ran home and told his parents about these angels he saw in a tree and I think his mother had to plead with his father not to beat the holy hell out of him so he was always quite a spiritual man now in Blake's poetry this is why I was going to look at the marriage of heaven and hell actually but Blake he, while he, he certainly follows a Christian tradition and the great Christian poet, the writer of the Christian epic Paradise Lost, Milton, is undoubtedly perhaps Blake's biggest influence and Blake's biggest hero. Blake's attitude towards religion was that there was no true religion and that all religions were one. He sort of wrote a tract about this in the past that he that he didn't necessarily believe in the literal truth of religion that that. um, And he also believed that there'd been he, he wrote his own epics and he wrote his own sort of poems and he, he concocted his own mythology as well which he borrowed from christian christian tradition but he also borrowed from some some of the classics as well so from classical greek and roman mythology too and blended them together in his epics and they often they often featured angels and devils and the the core sort of the 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 core one of the core themes of blake's mythology is the fall so the fall is seen as when adam and eve at from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and um they they suddenly were plunged into the world of sin the real world that we we live in now rather than living in paradise now blake's idea of a fall is slightly different so obviously there's the influence of milton right right away right there i mean right milton writing about that about paradise lost and then paradise regained being about the you know being paradise lost being about the garden of eden and paradise regained being about the death and resurrection of christ and so blake was slightly different blake had this different idea in one sense he saw the world of religion and the world of the art and the world of the imagination and then in um, another um, and in another sense, he saw the world of authority. He saw the world of sort of religious fundamentalism. So, not religion is in sort of religious spirituality, um, but, but there's sort of this this world of just you know the the, the, the tyranny of of religious leadership, the oppression. Um, I'm sure he saw monarchy the same way as well and political leadership. And he also looked at science. He He wasn't that into Newton. He wasn't a fan of Newton. There's a statue of Newton outside the British Library, which is based on one of the drawings by Blake or one of the engravings by Blake of this person with this very strong young body bent over, sort of sat on this beautiful rock with all these glowing minerals, but he's just sort of there crouching, and drawing on the floor with a set of compasses and sort of doing geometry. And this is very much a romantic idea in some ways. I think it was echoed in Keats when he spoke about Newton unweaving the rainbow. So this romantic idea of a kind of nature becoming itemized, becoming um, a world of numbers, you could say, a a world of acute and obtuse angles. And the demystification of nature. And Blake was a mysticist. Now it wasn't so much that Blake was anti-science. But Blake was more that there was this... There's a, so Blake's idea of the fall comes from this idea of holism. Everything was of one. And then the fall was when this great division happened. And in one sense there's the world of the body. The world of now. He spoke about energy and energy being eternal delight. And then, on the other side, the world of rules, the world of power, the world of authority, and he felt that the sort of you could almost call it logic and the imagination becoming separated and he was more about the unification of all of these ideas the the bringing together of things again and the and the and the fact of them not being separated so so what 's bad about that um that image of Newton? Blake is basically saying that, that um, he's he's not necessarily against science, but he is against missing out the whole big picture of things, the sort of more holistic knowledge. But, um if you look at scientific knowledge and then just say that's all knowledge, that's, I think, what, what Blake is saying. Whereas we have our subjective experiences of the world as well. And then there's the world of religion and other things. So Blake was always arguing for this holistic idea of, of things coming together again. And so that's why he didn't vilify Satan, for instance. So the idea of Satan in mythology, he saw this as a great separation. So the idea of sort of Christ and the angels and God and the angels on one side, and then Satan and the devils on the other, he felt this as like a, one of it, part of the fall, the schism of reality into these different entities, one being good, one being bad. Whereas he felt sort of there was more of a holistic idea. We needed both in the world. We needed balance in the world. So, We're approaching the idea of a tiger now, and I think we're getting closer to being able to read the poem. Just a few more biographical details about Blake. So he married his wife. I think um, I can't remember what age he was when he married his wife. She couldn't read or write when he married her because she couldn't sign her name on the marriage certificate. So he, he actually helped teach her how to read and write. And she she helped him so much of his work after that and became his assistant. Uh, He used to like sitting starkers in the garden with her as well, stark naked. Um, He tried to convince her to have a polyamorous relationship that that would include their maid, and she wasn't too hot on the idea. But I guess appreciated his honesty in in, in bringing it up, perhaps. So they used to like sitting naked in their garden. And one time, um, Blake got into trouble with the law because a drunken English soldier wandered into his garden, and, and Blake beat the holy hell out of him I hear Blake put a beating on him and Blake got into trouble with the law for that he died relatively penniless he had a failed sort of publishing or an engraving business and so he worked mainly sort of as a as an engraver engrave um, so sort of doing doing prints and doing illustrations for other people's publications and he had quite a cheerful death he was on his deathbed and he um, he was living near the strand at the time and he he made a drawing of his wife, one that hasn't survived. Um, she, he told her that she was his angel. And then he sung hymns until he died. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful death. I think we should do this a lot. I think, you know, we always talk about wonderful lives, but I think people can inspire us with their deaths um, in the sense that they realize that their death can be a gift to the living. Well, that's something I could go off on one about later on, couldn't I? I'll either go off on one about revolution and the need for violent revolution or I'll go off on one about um, how our death can be, can be a gift to the world. Cheerful stuff, evil way. So one other biographical detail is that he was part of a riot, part of a mob. I don't know if he was really wanting to be part of a mob or he got swept up in the mob. Um, there were riots, partially in response to a speech by Lord Byron as well, but um, in response to... Oppressive measures being brought out against Catholic citizens. So things that Catholics weren't allowed to do. And there were riots in response to that But culminated in them gathering outside Newgate prison, um, smashing at the gates of the prison and eventually setting fire, creating this massive blaze, setting um, Newgate prison on fire. So that was that was, I think that was a very, very pertinent biographical aspect that i think we can see reflected in the poem so um yeah i think that's enough biographical details oh yeah blake also you, you can visit his grave it's at bunhill fields he died he died a poor man and so he was buried in a, a pauper's grave which is um at um bunhill fields which is near old street tube if you do want to go visit it so it's all around the city between the city of london and shoreditch i guess and he's in a pauper's grave. There are other more famous, not more famous, but there are other famous writers buried in that cemetery with their own graves, um, which is, um, uh, is it John Bunyan, writer of the Pilgrim's Progress, and Daniel Defoe, writer of Robinson Crusoe. They have, they have their own graves. And there is a sort of a, a gravestone for William Blake, but his bones are actually in a pauper's grave. And he was, so he was buried many, just among many, his bones are there, mixed up the bones of the people, the people, the other people who were too poor to have their own grave. I think it's time to read the poem and then we can and then we can get on to um, analysing it, talking a bit more about his history, his ideas and his philosophy and other things. So this is a tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? in what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes on what wings dare he aspire what the hand dare seize the fire and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart and when thy heart began to beat what dread hand and what dread feet what the hammer what the chain in what furnace was thy brain what the anvil what dead grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears did he smile his work to see did he who made the lamb make thee tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye dare frame by fearful symmetry? So that was The Tiger by William Blake. Let's talk about the meter. I normally talk about the meter later. I want to talk about the meter now because I want to delve into the meaning and the imagery afterwards. So I'm, I'm swapping things over a little bit here. So the meter is um, mainly, I think, from the first stanza, and it pretty much sticks to it, is... Um, trochaic tetrameter, which basically means it's an eight-stress line um, with made up of trochee's rather than iams. That hasn't cleared it up for any anyone out there who hasn't been listening to the other episode. So let me delve into it a bit more. Um, a poetic meter is. I'm not going to explain this every episode, but I'll just explain it now just in case. Um, if you really do get, if you really do, if I, if in this podcast I talk about meter or any other technical aspects of poems and you feel a little bit lost, it's probably something I have explained earlier in the podcast. So if you feel a bit lost, I would suggest before giving up entirely on me, go back to episode one and listen from there because I introduce a lot of things gradually one by one. Um, before I start assuming that you know all these things so but I'll explain it again anyway so I uh, I often explain meter by just going di da di da so iambic pentameter which you'll find in a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets goes di da di da di da di da di da so d would be the unstressed syllable and da would be the stress syllable so shall i compare the two a summer's day you can hear that one syllable of each sort of part of the line is quieter and it's followed by a sort of more pronounced louder part of that syllable so those are ams. so one unstressed syllable the d followed by the da that's an iam so that's unstressed syllable followed by a big stress punchy stressed syllable and they make up what's a, what's called a metric foot so iambic pentameter pent means five it just means that there's five of those in the line so it's five iams in a line of the poem now this is different this is trochaic tetrameter so tetrameter means rather than five pieces of this meter it's um or feet it's got four feet instead and we find the sort of tetrameter in a lot of ballads sometimes it's tetrameter followed by um trimeter so all things uh, you find it in hymns as well so all things bright and beautiful all creatures great and small so it's a dun 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 so um four stress line followed by a, a three stress line or a three foot line so in here in tiger the difference is is that he's using a trochee and a trochee is a stressed syllable followed by an unstressed syllable so it sort of swaps the i am around so if we read the first line it's tiger tiger burning bright so tie stress syllable go unstressed syllable tie stress syllable go unstressed syllable burn stress syllable Ing, unstressed syllable, and then bright is a stressed syllable. So we're kind of missing, we're missing an unstressed syllable at the end of a line, but I'd still call it uh, trochaic tetrameter. But that said, actually, it's interesting because the last line, if we are pronouncing it that way, um, I still pronounce the final line slightly different. I pronounce the final line, the first foot of the final line, I pronounce it like it's an I am, so it's like an unstressed syllable followed by a stress syllable, dare frame, dare frame, I, I pronounced it. So whereas maybe if we're following the meter, we really put an emphasis on dare. So maybe we should say dare frame by fearful Symmetry. So the meter swaps about a little bit, but mainly it's got that aspect of it. So uh, the, the, the trochaic aspect. So let's look at the meaning of the poem. he's he's addressing a tiger the tiger is burning bright in the forest of the light and the main question is obviously who made you who made you now um there's a poem i think in songs of innocence which i can't recite off the top of my head but it's about a lamb and it's little lamb has a line little lamb who made thee so this is in songs of experience this one and the difference so these two books he brought out two books of songs and I'm going to call them songs because Blake was known to sing these poems himself and a lot of these poems sound better as songs than they do read out I know this because I've heard people singing the songs and they really work as songs and I think well of course there's poetry that happens in song lyrics I won't deny that I used to be a bit of a fundamentalist about the division between song lyrics and poetry and I think there are some meaningful divisions between the two I think there's also lots of crossover um, and ultimately a song lyric it still depends on melody and sometimes you can have interesting contrasts between what what is being spoken and melody whereas I think poetry has to bring its own music so it all has to be the contrast everything has to be built into the language and so I think some of Blake's songs sound better sung because of that and it sounds like Blake sung them himself hence why he calls them songs rather than poems. Tiger Tiger I'm not sure I think there's so much going on in it. It's quite meaty. And so I think it still sound. I think this one might sound better sung. So, yeah, Little Lamb Who Made made These. So in Songs of Innocence, he asked this idea. Now, in Songs of Innocence, it was published beforehand. And then about five years later... So I think it was... um. I think Songs of Innocence was published in 1789. And Songs of Experience was published in 1794. So there's five years between them. And Songs of Innocence is actually... Very much, it's about an innocent way of looking at the world, and then songs of experience. These are sometimes the same ideas get transformed into a way of looking at experience, and it's it's sort of having the two books also keys into this Blakeian idea anyway of things being separated, of things being split. And we have to unify our understanding. So um, the, the songs of experience kind of change the meaning of the songs of innocence. And then even the innocence at the same time can change the meaning of the songs of experience as well. So it's quite a dialectical process looking at the two. So, yes, he's asking a basic question about who made the tiger. And now I think looking at the rest of the poem, I think we can ask if we can find different ways of interpreting the poem that seem to answer the questions about different parts of the poem to others so in what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes on what wings dare he aspire what the hand dare seize the fire and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart and when thy heart began to beat what dread hand and what dread feet what the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? We, we're getting the idea of God as a blacksmith. So, OK, so this is where I already might diverge from popular opinion. So if we're taking a poem in a, in a literal sense, the poem is all about asking who made, who made the tiger? And of course, the most obvious example answer at the time would be, the God made the tiger. And I think in this poem, Blake is saying, "Okay, if God made the tiger, then do we have to change our understanding of God? Because the the tiger is this force of nature. Now, we remember um, that that Blake perhaps spoke favorably about human sexuality, about energy being eternal delight. He's in other poems such as um, such as the garden of love in which he speaks about going to the garden of love um which is the garden of a church but then sort of sees thou shalt not and all of these ideas of oppressive religion that wants to sort of curb and punish the delight of the senses and i think it's oh but was it uh, something with Bri- briar's my something and desires i can't binding with briar's my my hopes and desires i can't remember or my dreams and desires so blake's not against desire you know, this is the man who, who who wanted to hook up with his maid and his wife. So he's not against desire. So he's saying if all these things are part of our nature and if God made them, then maybe God is bigger than we think God is. You know, maybe God's encompasses human desire as well and doesn't want us to not feel desire and not follow through with our desire. So he's making that argument in the poem. But there are other arguments that we could think he was making. So. You get this idea also that he's using the image of God as a blacksmith. Now, this could, of course, you know, maybe this comes from the idea of the times as well. Um, The industrial times were sort of at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's full swing by the time we get to the Victorians. But the machine is taking over in human society as well. And romantics were very much against the kind of mechanization, not just of society, but the mechanization of consciousness. The idea of the temptation of looking at the human and looking at nature. As a kind of machine, and but he's using this idea of a machine in the poem to talk about how the tiger was made. And then when he says, "Does did he who made the lamb make thee?" The lamb is okay. He spells tiger in capital letters as well. But commentators have spoken about how the lamb. I mean, the lamb is not just a a symbol of innocence perhaps the ultimate symbol of innocence the lamb is also of course the image of christ and uh the, the christ is called the lamb because he is the sacrifice that is made for all the sins of the world you know the the lamb is sacrificed the innocent creature who is sacrificed to please god and then go and then god becomes christ and sacrifices himself so that everyone's sins can be forgiven according to um christian theology so so He's asking, did he who made the lamb, that's God making himself as a human child, make thee, make the tiger? So he's asking these questions again. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame by fearful symmetry? The, um, I've heard another interpretation, which is, is, is if God didn't, because so there's, there's a double edged aspect to it. So if God made the tiger, then we have to, then God is bigger and this small definition that we put on god that's one way of looking at the poem the other way of looking at the poem and there's a few ways of looking at the poem is well what if we're looking at something that was made by the devil is he asking that question did the devil make the tiger instead of god i think this is something my old english teacher said when we were looking at the poem it's is the tiger the product of the devil instead because if god is not if God as if we cannot accept if if the the idea of creating the tiger goes against God's idea, let's just say of of, of ways in which we see God, um, then then who made the tiger? Who made the tiger? Maybe the alternative thing is if not God, then maybe the devil. Now the devil is an interesting figure in Blake, because Blake, as I said, was a massive fan of Milton, and Milton perhaps is is well paradise lost is is perhaps so famous because satan in paradise lost at times he's the first literary anti-hero people say in the sense there are aspects of satan that are sympathetic satan in his idea of revolution the revolution against god and blake was certainly obsessed with revolution in his work not just the um Um, the American Revolution he was greatly inspired by and saw it as a great event but also the French Revolution was going on at the time he wrote this poem as well and so he, he was someone who embraced revolution as was seen when he was part of that mob that burnt down Newgate prison and you have to wonder whether his this image of the fire, I mean I heard somewhere that Blake saw a tiger for real perhaps at London Zoo, and was inspired by it it was, very, it was very much an intense aspect intense experience for him now that is something I've plucked from my memory of something I might remember from a TV documentary I was trying to research it a little while ago to see if he had actually seen a tiger for real and I couldn't find anything that satisfactory so But he certainly saw Newgate prison burning and the idea of revolution being tied up with the idea of fire and the role that fire plays in this poem as well. The tiger is an embodiment of the idea of fire, of revolution. So fire is is obviously seen as a symbol of revolution in Paradise Lost and in Milton and the idea of the rebel angels um, with Satan actually yeah according to theology isn't it that satan starts off as um i think i know this is i think this is an islamic theology but the idea of it's when angel, satan um in his human form in his angel form is lucifer and then in his fallen form he is satan now Satan is actually a Hebrew name that comes from um, the Old Testament, obviously. And Satan is meant to translate as tempting one. And it actually comes from the book of Job. And so interpretations of seeing Satan as the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that was a later kind of Christian thing. So and Lucifer, I think, is the Latin name of the morning star, if I remember right. And so so there's these different origins coming coming together here um satan sort of becomes the devil in in christian theology so and and i think that kind of feeds into the islamic theology and the devil as well i don't know enough about it but i learned from my own students actually this idea of 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 loose in, in in islamic theology sort of lucifer is the pre-fallen state and satan is the fallen state so um back to this idea of the devil Milton. So milton Uh, Blake read Milton's Paradise Lost, obviously, and he wrote Milton as an epic, as a kind of response to Paradise Lost. And and that contains the the hymn that everyone is forced to sing uh, at school, as well as um, the rugby kind of the England rugby team's unofficial anthem, Jerusalem. Um, But but he spoke of the devil. So he saw this quite sympathetic treatment of the devil in Paradise Lost. And he said that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. Now, Milton was a Puritan. You know, he was a man who was a very devout Christian and he wanted to write a Christian epic with Paradise Lost. And yet the thing that we all kind of remember from reading Paradise Lost is the depiction of Satan. And so, yeah, Blake's insinuating that Milton was unconsciously sympathetic to Satan, but it was because of cognitive dissonance. Um, he couldn't do it and and we know this because you know he was part of an insurrection himself Milton the sort of you know the 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 decapitation of the king and the replacement of the king with the lord protector Oliver Cromwell so revolution was part of of Milton's makeup and so you can imagine the cognitive dissonance going on here so you know the the idea of rebellion and the rebellion of the angels that he was writing about when he was kind of part of the, the rebelling side himself so We fast forward to Blake and the tiger. So, yes, the idea, I think Satan is sort of present in this poem in that sense, in the presence of fire, in the presence of the tiger. It also asks a question about, well, if God made everything, he made Satan, didn't he? He made Satan as well. He made he made the creature that would rebel against him. He created rebellion. So, again, even if rebellion is punished, can rebellion be a bad thing? if God created it now we're getting into allegorical territory so certainly we've been looking at the tiger the role the tiger plays and I and I feel that we've been looking at the um, the archetypal metaphorical aspect of the tiger that idea of the image of a tiger that that stirs the unconscious depths now looking at um, so yeah I, I don't know my favorite example of a tiger as an as a sort of archetype rather than a direct allegory is um the judith kerr the children's author i think she died recently did she die recently i think she did and she wrote a famous book called the um tiger that came to tea about kid who comes home from school and finds a tiger there and the tiger creates all kinds of chaos and then the dad gets back and says look let's just go and have our go and have our tea at the calf and when they come back the tiger is gone And sometimes people ask Judith Kerr, is this tiger um, an allegory for Nazi Germany, for Nazism? And her response is always, it's a tiger. It's just about a tiger that came to tea. Now, is a tiger ever just a tiger? Do you know what I mean? So when she says it's just a tiger, is she saying this mammal, this, this carnivorous mammal ended up, you know, ended up in a kitchen? But why a tiger? Why not a lion? why not a wolf why not a leopard why not a cougar why not a bear of all the car- of all the carnivores it's the tiger isn't it the color of a tiger the flame colored color of a tiger um the legend of the tiger isn't it how a tiger got its stripes is it was surrounded um it was tied up with burning rope is that right is that one of the, the sort of stories about how a tiger got its stripes so the tiger always seems to be tied up with the idea of fire. I think there's something very primal about the tiger. And I think that's the archetypal idea of a tiger and how it pops up in different legends, even in countries when what well, people hear about tigers, but they have their own little origin stories of tigers as well. So we've looked at the tiger so we can move now into allegory. So the allegorical reading of the poem of the tiger by William Blake is that people say I think Tom Paulin. I remember Tom Paulin, the grumpy Northern Irish poet Tom Paulin. he used to appear in the late show quite a lot and got into arguments with Germaine Greer quite a lot with and Mark Kermode I think and um I've forgotten the other guy's name the main host but anyway um Cousins or no I can't remember his name anyway um This interpretation is that the poem is about the French Revolution. So even though he had written about the American Revolution and written about it as a triumph, writing about the French Revolution showing sympathies towards the French Revolution while you're in London is perhaps a bit more dangerous, being that there was a genuine fear that the peasantry would revolt and chop the monarchy's heads off. So, you know, because it had happened before. Not too blooming long before. So there was a certain fear about that. So it could be argued that Blake, who was a guy who would still beat the living snot out of a soldier if he strayed drunkenly into his garden, wouldn't necessarily write about rebelling in that sense having a a british a, a london or a british or an english revolution um which would be inspired by the french or to at least even just evoke his sympathy even if he wasn't campaigning for a british revolution to sort of see the french revolution as a triumph was itself quite a dangerous thing to publicly publicly express at the time so i can understand this idea but yes that the poem could be a, a quite direct allegory of the French Revolution as well. Um, I don't know. I think it's all of these things. I think ultimately, again, it's archetypal. It's that archetypal aspect of fire. I can imagine, tiger, you know, Blake staring to the flames of Newgate Prison as it burned and the symbolic aspect of that. And then maybe seeing a tiger or knowing this, having this internal image of a tiger and seeing the tiger representing that kind of idea of flame as well but the tiger also is a merciless and pitiless predator and its nature to be you know the tiger is a creature that follows its nature and 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 Blake himself often said that human beings should follow their desire because their desire should be a part of their nature so so we shouldn't cut out that aspect of our being So there's something about this poem, I think, but I hope we got enough from this now, which is, yes, it's a poem about a tiger. Yes, it's a poem that might ask whether God made the tiger, but it's also a poem perhaps about revolution. It's about the primality of existence. It's about human desire. And it could possibly be about current events of the time, such as the French Revolution. I don't think any of these are necessarily wrong. A poem can have lots of meanings. And some of those meanings that a poem can have aren't necessarily meanings that the author intended people always sort of share these images i'm almost going off on one here aren't i but um but i'm 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 going to have to i think i'm just going to seg into going off on one in a minute but people often talk about the meaning of a poem or a meaning of a work of art and they always go oh look at this professor saying this poems about this and then the author gets asked what it's about, and they just go, "Oh, it's about the thing it's literally doing. It's literally about because all authors talk like that." So the big example, perhaps, being Judith Kerr saying, "You know, what's the, is it about the is the poem is is the Tiger Who Came to Tea about Nazism?" And her saying, "No, it's about a tiger." And you know what? I think you can interpret interpret that poem that that children's story about being about Nazism um, criticism isn't just about making stuff up criticism is about different mindsets that human cultures and societies go through and the way works of art can be reflected in those mindsets and things that people didn't intend within the work themselves when a work is part of a culture and exists within a culture, that's how meanings are created. Meaning isn't solely about what the what the author or the painter or the creator or the director of that work had in their head at the time of creating that. And if you don't agree with that, you're a bit of a dullard, if you ask me. Whoa, I'm a bit a bit acerbic there, aren't I? I think it's time for me to go off on one, right? But my phone's over there and my phone I normally When I wander off on one, W-O-O-O, I normally play Ric Flair saying, woo! I can't do it, can I? Um, So I play Ric Flair saying woo, but my phone's over there and I can't be bothered to unlock it. Go through the files and play it. I think I've done this once before. But I don't think I'm always I'm very quiet in this mic, aren't I? I'm right up against the mic here. So I get that's how I get my certain quality of this podcast, a certain sound quality that I hope is enjoyable for you. But I've gone. I'm going to wander off on one now, but I don't have a sound effect to go woo. So I'm going to lean back. I feel really self-conscious about doing this, but um, I'm going to lean back on my own flat and make a Ric Flair woo, but not in a whispery, weak sense. Okay, here we go. Woo! That was a bit better. Sorry, neighbours. It's still not good enough. Only one... There's only... It's, no one can top Rick with the woos, can they? So, um, I said I'd go off on one, one, between one or two things. Let's start with the idea for Violent Revolution. <laughs> and if we've got time, we'll talk about death as a gift. Or maybe we'll save that to another time. Violent Revolution is something I was talking about, so I was quite interested in talking about recently, because we were talking about the idea of debating fascists, or whether fascists should just be resisted in by whatever means necessary. And I think that fascism is, I personally do not think fascism is a subject that needs to go up for debate. And I think we should resist fascism, either with civil disobedience, with passive, with pacifist, disobedience or pacifist means or even non-pacifist means as well perhaps one of the most famous examples is when the um, british fascists before the second world war the british fascists fascists as uh, the black shirts as as led by oswald mosley tried marching through cable street which was a working class jewish um community east london community in london and they wouldn't let it happen they ran out onto the streets and they 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 went full-on fisticuffs with the british fascists and they sent the british fascists packing now some people i've read some revisionist takes in this or people saying that we we romanticize cable street too much and that actually things got worse for Um, the people after cable street in the sense that the establishment actually used it against the jewish people and i guess against the working classes as well there was more violence against the jewish people and the fascists were viewed in a more sympathetic sense because of it and that we've actually looked in a more romantic way now i i disagree i think you look at any insurrection if you look at any time when the people are taken to the streets and rioted or used violence against. It's always gone that way. It's always gone with the powers that be saying, "Oh, you guys, look at look at um, Charlottesville, right? When fascists actually marched, people resisted fascists. The fascists killed fascists killed people, or someone got killed by a fascist with a car. And then Trump said, you know, famously, Trump said, "On both sides, there were there were bad things done on both sides." So. You know, it always happens. It all, you know, even though no one was killed on the other side. Sure, some fascists got maybe, maybe maybe they got punched, maybe they got chased away and had to sort of flee in a car. But but no one got killed on that side of things. But they, but um but so no matter what this insurrection was, if you look at the Brixton riots, if you look at all these riots, whatever, that eventually led to things getting better because you couldn't things got placed in the public consciousness and people realized that you know they had to but they 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 had to improve things but, but riots always got fi- got followed by by the law coming down hard on people throwing people in jail it always it always got followed by the tabloids and all the newspapers going against the people that rioted calling them thugs it's always happened so i don't see why that argument applies to cable street and secondly what would have happened if the um, Jewish people had let them march through Cable Street, this is when the Daily Mail was running headlines that said "Hooray for the black shirts." So they, the fascists, were already being celebrated. Some probably—I don't know when that headline was actually "Hooray for black shirts." Maybe it was after Cable Street. Maybe someone will point that out to me. I should—I should have researched that before I went off on one. But the whole point is, I'm wandering off on one. There's no academic rigor here, people. So. Why do I speak about fascism? Why do I single out fascism? Okay, I myself, and I don't judge anyone. Well, I judge fascists, right? (laughs) But uh, if you're a conservative, let's say, or you're a um, libertarian, I'm a socialist. Maybe you're an anarchist. Maybe you're from the other side of the lefty spectrum. Maybe you're a communist. I'm just a socialist. Um, Maybe you're a kind of progressive capitalist liberal, but even if my ideas are different from you so if you're a conservative i think that i can debate you i would debate you you know why i would debate you because i think we have some common grounds in ideas of what we think human good and human decency is we both think that everyone needs a roof over their head don't we we both think that we both think that children should be fed and educated and i think there's a lot of stuff that we agree with right but we might have a difference as to the means. So I, might, I think that rich people should pay their more tax and big corporations should pay more tax. And then that tax can be used to fund these things via the government. Now, you, if you're a libertarian, you might disagree because you feel that the government shouldn't control everything. And we think, and you might appeal that, 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 that actually all these things can be directly funded by companies or by rich people um, who ultimately... Um, You might believe in the free market that actually human ethics will ultimately be reflected in the free market. Now, I disagree with that, but we can at least come into our disagreements through a shared idea of what is good. And if you're a conservative, it could be a similar thing. If you're not a libertarian, if you're a conservative, um, you might think that, okay, socialism isn't good because it can lead to the end of human freedom and it can you know that actually it can lead to oppression like it like in the Soviet Union or North Korea and or, or even though China I think is just an authoritarian capitalist state now you might argue China is being communist so or socialist so we could have this argument but again I think it comes from common ideas of what is good for people um, also a conservative might think that um, that socialists have their hearts in the right place but, but 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 the socialism fails on pragmatic grounds and so they feel that some maybe conservatism or whatever is is the more pragmatic way to try and get about go about the things these things they think it's the more realistic way of doing things but as i said i disagree personally I'm not going to have this inward debate with myself with my inner tory right now but i could debate you about it i can't debate a fascist because ultimately a fascist believes that people aren't equal and so there's no such thing as human needs as in a fascist will believe that people from certain parts of the world whose ancestors come from certain parts of the world even though all our bloody ancestors ultimately come from africa but fascists will believe that these people are better than these people and the ultimate good is the good of this smaller amount of people rather than a good that applies to all humanity. So we can't find those common grounds. And I think that's one reason why I can't debate a fascist. The debate has to come from agreed common grounds before we can find what our differences are, perhaps normally in how we attain that. Okay, I can't find any common goods with a fascist. I really can't. So that's one reason. Second reason is is fascism is Has been for quite a while discredited as an ideology, uh, both in an ethical sense and even in a pragmatic sense and other senses as well. But like other ideologies that have been discredited, putting it on a debate platform with the far more successful or far more ethical ideology um, shows it to be equal. We know this from climate change. Climate change is a good example when state broadcasters like the BBC used to be in the habit of getting, if they had to speak to someone about climate change, their idea of impartiality was to invite someone who, who, was a, who basically said man-made climate change was a, was a myth or pseudoscience. Now, if you look at science itself, the orthodoxy is the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists say that man-made climate change is, is real. And this is just you know, this is a massively orthodox thing. It's it's just it's agreed across the board I and mean, then there's a few fringe people who are normally well funded by the petrol petrochemical lobby who are saying they get who are talking against that a bit like people that researchers who are paid to kind of show that smoking didn't cause cancer for quite a while as well. So actually the BBC have changed their stance on this and they are no longer inviting, you know, people from the fringes to be, but, but the whole point is, is that you take two people and you, and immediately the performance of a debate shows it to be a 50, 50 split that one is almost as agreeable and accountable as the other. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. So, it actually gives credence. So when one person had a, a creator, when a famous evolutionary psychologist, evolutionary biologist had a creationist asked to debate him, um, he would say the, the biologist, evolutionary biologist said, um, I, I lose just by even if I win, I lose. And if you lose, you win, because already by being presented as two equal theories, um, you already gain something from it. So that's why we don't debate fascists is my short answer. Um and that's why I, I agree with with either punching them or not punching them or whatever. And I, I'm sure I could debate you, dear listener, because I'm sure you're not a fascist, yeah. We could debate about that, couldn't we? But we can debate about it because we have common ideas of human good. That's why we might disagree on the methods. We might disagree on them on the specifics of the human good but we have general ideas of the human good i think that we both agree in and that's why we can discuss and why we can debate as soon as someone rejects all those i don't know how you can have an ethical debate with that person right i think that's um i think that's it that's it i haven't got time to speak about death as a gift um because i can save that for another episode i'll probably get an elegy And then I can talk about death as a gift, can't I? Or a poem about death of someone. So um, thank you very much for listening. I really enjoyed this one. As I always say, please, um, please, if you can share it, you'd really help out. I'd love to have more people listening to this. I really love doing it. Don't get me wrong. This gives a lot of pleasure and meaning to me. And I'm very happy with the numbers as they stand. And I'm very happy to carry on with the numbers as they stand. But, you know, a little part of me is a bit greedy. A little part of me is a bit narcissistic. A little part of me needs the world to tell me how great I am in a way that doesn't creep me out. Uh, That's normally, normally just looking at numbers on an app telling me how good I am. So if you want to share it, if you want to share it or leave a nice review via iTunes or tell a mate about it in whatever way you would like or sharing it on the social media, you'd be doing me a huge favor because I'd like it to grow. But I'm going to keep doing this because it's fun. And even if it was popular and it wasn't fun, I would stop. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Enjoy the sunshine. If it is sunny right now where you are, it's certainly very sunny where I am right now. But if it's not, if you're listening to this years down the line or whatever, whatever, Enjoy whatever it is, (laughs) whatever meteorological conditions are surrounding you at the moment. Take care. Have a good one. Bye bye.